when the missionaries came to Korea, they stressed many different things. First, self-propagation, meaning um, the Korean Christians need to share the gospel themselves, not just the foreign missionaries. Self-governing, which is as soon as the Korean believers are ready to lead their own churches, then raise them up, hand over the churches to them. But the third one was self-supporting. You want the Korean churches to support themselves. And so the missionaries, many of them who are from the U.S., emphasized that if you want to have a church, you build it yourself. If you want a pastor, you support him yourself. And that was, that was what was stated or strongly exhorted to the Korean believers. And it really strengthened the health and matured the Korean church. And all this was part of what's called the Nevius Method. Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. All right, James, it is good to see you once again. We've obviously spoken with you before. You've shared uh, about Korea, the history of the spiritual history of Korea, the roles of compromise, and you've talked about missions and other things. And your wife has joined us as well to share her perspective, which was really a blessing for many. I heard from some of our listeners that were really touched by that. So it's really nice to see you again. How are you doing? We're doing great. Praise God. By God's grace, we are uh, busy right now, uh, starting off ESL, or English as Second Language Ministry, in our local church, our home church here in Leesburg, Cornerstone Chapel. And we, uh, in our ESL program now, currently we have close to 90 students, and we're expecting another 20 to 30 to join us over the next few weeks. A great way to reach out to the nations that God is bringing into our community. Absolutely. Well, that that's exciting. And I'm going to put the links to your previous episodes that you've joined us for, but for anybody that hasn't encountered you previously, uh, would you just tell us briefly about who you are and your ministry? Sure, yeah. So we are James and Faith Cha. Unique thing about us, we were both born in Korea, South Korea, all four of our parents are from North Korea. So they are they were born in North Korea and they fled during the they fled during the Korean War from the north to the south. And so we have that unique uh privilege and blessing of having been born in South Korea, immigrated to the US at a young age. And uh, both of us, by God's grace, we were called into full-time ministry when we were young. For her, it was age 16. For me, it was age 20 uh, before we met each other. And, uh, and then we got married in 1991. So this year, we celebrated our 32nd 
wedding anniversary. But our um, commitment to Mary happened right after we confirmed that both of us were called to overseas missions. So that was the the drawing point for both of us that if we were if either of us were not committed to full-time missions overseas, then we would not have gotten married. And um, since getting married, then the Lord allowed us to pay off our student loans. We went to seminary in Columbia, South Carolina, and then joined Pioneers, a mission agency in, based in Orlando, Florida. Went to Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan for 10 years. By God's grace, we saw over 120 Muslims come to Christ. Mm. Um, but it was there in Uzbekistan in 2005 that I was arrested, leading a Bible study with uh, four other men, local Muslims who had come to Christ. Eventually, we were deported from that country, and, um, and then we went to Kyrgyzstan, the next country over. And by God's grace, about uh, 120 Muslims came to Christ during our time in Central Asia, and we were allowed, we were able to start four house churches. Mm. Praise God. That's amazing. Well, that's fantastic. And so that's how you started your foray into to missions, cross-cultural missions, and you haven't taken your foot off the accelerator. God's still using you and moving through your family what are you up to today? So aside from doing ESL ministry here and uh, really encouraging churches in America to open their doors to communities around them, people from other faiths, especially from other nations through ESL ministry, this past summer, we took a team from our home church. There were nine of us, including the two of us, and we went to Kazakhstan for one week of short-term mission. But afterwards, we took, just the two of us, we went into Uzbekistan, and that was after 17 years. You know, because of my arrest and our deportation in 2006, we were officially on the KGB blacklist for about 10 years. So in 2016, when we tried to go back, we were denied access. But providentially, that same year, a new president was elected. The first president passed away, and the second president was very progressive, and he actually wanted more commerce to come into his country. So he decided it, He decided that if you're over 55 as U.S. citizens, you do not need to apply for visa. You can just walk right up to the uh, customs and airport and if they grant you a, a stamp, then you can come into the country. So praise God, we were able to go back into Uzbekistan after 17 years. And we got reconnected with our first house church that we planted in Samarkand, Uzbekistan after wow. 17 years. That's amazing. I can only imagine what that reunion must have been like. Yes, it was um, a lot of tears, uh, amazing worship. We just reminded us of, uh, again, that the worship was about three hours long or even longer, you know, a lot of singing. You know, I, I was able to share God's word from First Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 17. And then after that, we had uh, great uh, fried rice, the local favorite, and we enjoyed that for about an hour. And we got to hear testimonies of our disciples 
of third and fourth generation disciples. Wow. And, you know, just uh, still facing persecution. The government has eased up on persecuting the Christians, but from the family members, from relatives, from friends and neighbors, the persecution is still there in Uzbekistan. Mm. And um, I, why I mentioned about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in that passage, Paul gives a strong warning and a challenge uh, reminding the people of Corinth that it's not so much, it's not important uh, who the apostles or leaders coming in across their church history, their establishment, God does everything and Christ is the only foundation. But then he gives this challenge, be careful how you build. You want to build with gold and precious stones, which are imperishable. You know, they survive the test of fire, but um, you don't want to build with straw and hay, which eventually will fall apart. And the amazing thing from that passage is that sometimes we don't know the results of what we build with until two or three generations later uh, because yeah. it takes time to build a building. It takes time to build God's church. And what's what the Lord revealed to us today, uh, this year, this summer, when we went back, was that when we started our house church, amongst these group of Muslims who had just come to faith in Christ, both Tajik and Uzbek Muslims, we strongly encouraged, aside from repenting, you know, turning away from Islam and abandoning or renouncing everything about Islam and then coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we encouraged them three th with three things. First, you need to keep the Lord's Day. So that's the fourth commandment, honor the Lord's Day or the Sabbath and make, keep it holy. So come to church regardless of what obstacles are in the way. If you have a business, close the business on Sundays. And that's that happens to be their bazaar day. And as a merchant, that would be the most profit, profitable day. And yet we encourage them to honor the Lord's Day and come. Second, tithing. We strongly encourage them the principle of tithing faithfully to the Lord. Um, and, you know, many of them would say, well, we're in so much debt. We we have a job. It's not paying enough, but we are in debt for borrowing money for different reasons. And we would make the point, you know, in America, ev almost everyone is in debt because of mortgage. You know, they have to pay 20, 30 years, and, but they still tithe. And the Lord has been providing all of his children. So you need to, don't come to the Lord's house empty-handed. And then third, face persecution with joy. Do not be ashamed of Jesus when persecution comes. Just like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, rejoice and be glad when you are insulted or persecuted for his namesake. Because he said, great is your reward in heaven. Mm -hmm. So those are the three things that we emphasized. But when we went back this summer, our disciples were so thankful. They said, thank you for encouraging us, especially to tithe, because the Lord has blessed us again and again. And here's how it fits in. 
because the gospel has been in Uzbekistan since 1991. So for 32 years. And there are hundreds of churches now, thousands of Uzbeks and Tajiks, local Muslims who have come to Christ. But some of the missionaries who came to Uzbekistan did not emphasize giving faithfully to the Lord. And so what's happened in that country is that the country is spiritually mature enough now to send out missionaries mm. to neighboring Muslim countries. And there are about five missionary families from Uzbekistan sent into neighboring countries, mm. supported by the network of house churches in Uzbekistan. However, financially, they're not able to support them. And so we were in Kazakhstan with our own disciple who recently, about a year ago, was sent overseas or sent to the neighboring country as a missionary family supported by the network of house churches. However, they can only support 5% of their budget. The rest, 95%, comes from overseas, especially from the U.S. And just hearing about that, our own disciples who remain in Uzbekistan, part of our house churches, they brought up this issue. You know, when, and they, he, they looked at us, when you left your job and your home, everything in America to come to Uzbekistan, you made a sacrifice to come to us, which is true. I was an engineer, electrical engineer. My wife was a pharmacist. We took a step down from our salary, monthly salary, by five to 10 times. Mm. Basically, it was, you know, it was not for money that we got into missions. But from Uzbekistan to go to Kazakhstan, their monthly support or lifestyle or salary steps up by 10 times. And so some of our disciples made the point, you know, now there is an idea in Uzbekistan for a lot of Christians that they want to be missionaries because then they they get free housing, they even get a car, their kids get good education in a more developed country like Kazakhstan. Who would not want to be a missionary? And just hearing that brought some <laughs> questions and turmoil into my heart. And um, God has blessed Christians of Uzbekistan. They many of them have good good paying jobs or they're making profit as businessmen, but because they have not been taught faithfully to give to the Lord, especially tithing, the church of Uzbekistan is still weak in terms of giving. Mm. And this is where I want to take us back to what happened in Korea. When the missionaries came to Korea, they stressed many different things. First, self-propagation, meaning... Um, the Korean Christians need to share the gospel themselves, not just the foreign missionaries. Self-governing, which is as soon as the Korean believers are ready to lead their own churches, then raise them up, hand over the churches to them. But the third one was self-supporting. You want the Korean churches to support themselves. And so the missionaries, many of them who are from the U.S., emphasized that 
If you want to have a church, you build it yourself. If you want a pastor, you support him yourself. And that was that was what was stated or strongly exhorted to the Korean believers. And it really strengthened the health and matured the Korean church. And all this was part of what's called the Nevius method or the Nevius strategy. John Nevius was a missionary to China about the same time in mid-1800s. And he made emphasis on those, especially those three points. And it influenced a lot of the missionaries who came to Korea. And what the missionaries did, however, were economic or um, commercial projects that were beyond the scope of the Korean believers. The missionaries helped with that, like establishing hospitals, Mm -hmm. universities, seminaries, orphanages. Those were financially beyond the scope of the Korean church. And so the missionaries raised funds from overseas and helped build those institutions. But as far as local churches were concerned, the missionaries encouraged the Korean church, local Korean church, to be self-sustaining, to stand on its own two feet. And and the Lord has honored that Mm. and allowed Korea to be quickly, the Church of Korea, to become independent. And so... Even today, after the Church of America, South Korea is the second most sending missionary sending church country around the world. You know, I think as last year, 2022, we heard the report that there were over 30,000 full-time missionaries sent out by South mm-hmm. Korea serving all across the world from a small country like Korea, and yet second only to the U.S., and, you know, it's not so much to boast about the Koreans, but it was the faithful teaching of the whole counsel of God, both the Old and the New Testament. And we also taught our disciples, you know, tithing is a minimum. You should have the uh, the uh, New Testament model of giving sacrificially, even beyond tithing, for ministries of the church and to help those who are in need. And when we went back this summer... I met with the leader of the house church network in Uzbekistan, and he was based in Tashkent, a very humble man. He became a believer in a prison about 20 years ago. But what he said to me was, he said, thank you for mentoring your church faithfully. And he he said, did you know that your church, which has only 30 members, is the second most giving church in all of Uzbekistan? Mm. And he said, how can that be such a small church? And yet, and he said, churches in our capital city, Tashkent, we have members who are wealthy businessmen, but they're not tithing. They give when they feel like it, but they don't give faithfully to the Lord. And we're ashamed that we cannot support missionaries full time going overseas or going to other countries. And we have to rely on outside funds. And so I did challenge him, uh, perhaps because then this is a reason, uh, dear brother, that Uzbekistan may not be ready to send out full-time missionaries to other countries. Perhaps you can send them on short-term missions, but not on full-time support 
because now that it has it is creating this unhealthy interest or even temptation by believers in Uzbekistan that they want to be a missionary to another country for all the financial benefits that comes with that come with uh, being a, a yeah. full-time missionary. So what I want to stress is that again, you know, as we faithfully live out the teachings of of our Lord, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, even the principle of tithing, we may feel like, well, our disciples are living in poverty. How can we ask them to give a tenth of their earnings to the Lord? Maybe they can start giving when they are more well-established. But in, in hindsight, that was not the best approach just honoring the Lord from the very beginning when they come to Christ, even if they are in need and they're in debt, just teaching them, you need to give faithfully to the Lord, tithing as a minimum. And the Lord has honored our disciples. All of them are doing well financially. It's just amazing how God has blessed them. And we ourselves, when we were with our house church, we gave our tenth, our tithe from our monthly support, which wasn't that much. You know, we was like 150 to $200. We gave to our ministry and to our church, local church, and asked them to use that. We put it into the, uh, committed them to the heart, to the hands of our local pastors to use that to help those who are in need, um, especially to start micro business so that they, um, instead of keep, asking for money, for help, they can use that money to start a new business and support themselves. And they saw that example from us. So so then we were able to live out what we were teaching them Yeah, and for and them what, to follow. We will return to the podcast momentarily. But first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at christianemergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.christianemergency.com. And now, back to the show. And what you had been teaching them before. So you followed up, you bookended it with this short-term trip and this visit, and they were able to see that you're still faithful and you're demonstrating, you're modeling this this behavior, which I'm sure was uh, very powerful for them. Boy, there is so much that you shared just there. I mean, so much that is striking a chord with me. And I and I just wanted to, to tease out some of these different items. When you describe how there were some, for example, the, the, the small house church network that you guys were involved with, 
this was part of what you were doing. You, you call it Nevius strategy, um, this self-supporting. But really what it boils down to is this principle of just being faithful and obedient to the word and faithful in giving, faithful in tithing, even whether you're with little or with much. That was being taught in, in your setting, yet it wasn't being discipled and modeled in other settings. Was that because it just wasn't uh, seen as, as important spiritually? And I guess a second caveat question is, is there any teaching that is actually counter to this? Are there any that are teaching not to pursue this type of obedience? That's a good question. We have on the field missionaries who come not only from come from different denominations, but also from different countries. And for instance, if you come from a country like Europe, like Germany, I've heard that in the state church, the pay, the salary comes from the government. It doesn't come from the church. So then uh, people, the members are not encouraged to tithe. And so, um, and they, they're not growing up with a tithing mentality um, as part of their spiritual discipline. In the U.S. or even in Korea, the salary for the pastors come from the church. And so believers are encouraged to, to give not only for the ministries that the church is engaged in, but also to support your local pastor who may be working full time. Um, so what happened was, one time we had to come back on furlough for about six months and we uh, asked a, a fellow missionary and they were from Germany to look over our house church. And when we came back, our own members were kind of confused because we had been encouraging our, our disciples to tithe faithfully. And this other missionary couple, they said, no, that's Old Testament principle. So you don't have to follow that. You know, give God loves a cheerful giver and you can you should give when you are able. And so it took some time for us to kind of go back and reestablish this strong principle of tithing as a bare minimum, because even in first Corinthians, Paul really commands uh, the church, I think, of Macedonia or the groups of churches. He, he said, you know, they gave beyond uh, what they were able to give towards God's ministry for Paul in the Mediterranean world. And, and just a strong emphasis, you know, in the New Testament church, always to give more than what you're able. And it, for instance, Jesus would command that widow who gave the two coins or two mites out of nothing. And he, he didn't, in a way, dispel that and say, hey, you know, she, she did a foolish thing. She's going to starve now, but he really uh, praised her. And Paul, in the same way, always lifted up and honored and praised those who the churches or group of churches that gave sacrificially. And even in Acts chapter four, we see Barnabas and other believers selling properties, lands, whenever there was a need, and they laid them at the the feet of the apostles to use for church ministry. So that's the principle we drew from. Those were the principles. Um, and I, you know, in the New Testament, there's more freedom to interpret and how 
those different passages about cheerful giving. And so basically the premise was if you don't feel that cheerful about giving, then you don't have to. So it's it's a mixed bag as far as me hearing this. I'll tell you, I'm encouraged. I'm 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 encouraged that uh, this conversation is happening, and I'm encouraged by what you experienced on your return visit, where you saw this faithfulness still being carried out years and years later, um, and how it's being recognized even amongst some of the leadership in the the church throughout that country, and they're recognizing that it really is bearing fruit, and that if others were carrying this same uh, attitude forward, the same pattern forward, they really would be in a much better position to be carrying on foreign missions. So I, I do think it's just an act of faithfulness. So I'm, I'm encouraged to hear this. And if this is a problem in Uzbekistan, this is a problem I, I, I can pretty much guarantee in every country around the world. And so if you're listening to this, if you're listening to James's account, and and it's start it's sinking in and you're recognizing it another encouraging element of this is how simple the corrective action is and it's simply to be faithful with with the little that you have or whatever income you have uh, to be able to just contribute that um to tie to your local church it may not make the most sense um but God does honor that and and use that through his church and you have faithful people, even like you said, if it's 30 individuals that are, are faithfully doing this, they are really able to support the ministry that God's called them to do and that God's doing in those communities. So I'm encouraged by this simple nature. If we can just recognize it and acknowledge it as a shortcoming, we can—this seems to be a simple step to to correct. Is that your take, James? Yes, I Precisely. I think it starts with us. You know, the Great Commission, Jesus says to us, a part of that was teach them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And of course, that includes the Old and New Testament teachings. And, you know, when we feel like, oh, you know, I think this particular command or this particular um, exhortation is too burdensome for our disciples, then we play the role of of our Lord God and saying, well, this one you don't have to obey, but this one you should mm. rather than submitting ourselves to the whole counsel of God, all the commands and just saying, well, this is what Jesus said. Let's obey it. Even if it's hard and God blesses that heart of obedience and faithfulness, not only in us, but also in our disciples. And just want to share the statistics. In America, there are about 4,000 Korean-American churches, which is a huge number. Mm-hmm. Many of them have their own buildings now, you know, scattered across the U.S. And yet, and Koreans have cut, started coming in here maybe in great numbers since 1960s, definitely more in 70s and 80s. You've had Chinese people in the U.S. for fifth generation since like turn of the century, late 1800s. But you don't see as many Chinese churches in America as you do with Korean churches. Somehow that faithful tithing was more strongly emphasized in the church history of Korea than in other churches. And same with the Indian Christian population in the U.S., their community. Um, So we 
you know, not to boast about Koreans, but I just, I feel like this Nevius method that was faithfully adopted and then preached and taught by the missionaries in Korea, we are seeing the fruition of that, not only in Korea, but in in America as well, amongst Korean American churches, but also in missions. It has brought um, so many Korean mis- full-time missionaries from South Korea all over the world. And our heart is to see Uzbek church become like that. Mm, yeah. We want to see them not only have the desire, they have the desire, but they cannot go yeah. because the funding is not high enough. And we also, you know, see same struggle with India. You know, we have sometimes Indian pastors or evangelists come and visit us from India right here in D.C. area. And they give an update about their ministry. But then after that, there is always a request for funding for what is happening back in India. And, you know, I wonder if the Lord has he not blessed some of the Indian Christians with such a strong you know, both not only spiritually, but also financially, that if they tithe faithfully, that they could cover mm-hmm. uh, the ministry needs in their own country. Yeah. It is, in a way, it's, yeah, it's lacking or it's embarrassing that they're coming, continue to come to America for that funding. And it, I think um, it goes back then to us as missionaries, as uh, people going into other countries that not only... Do we practice faithful giving here, but we teach that wherever we go? Yeah, I, I, and I could see circumstances where parts of the church in certain areas of the world because of war or trauma or some set of circumstances is just in dire straits and needing help from the rest of the body. But in so much, I think you're right. Uh, if, if this were just more faithfully followed, even at, at small levels, it would make a huge difference. And I also think it would change the ask. Maybe it's not even an ask, but instead you'd have parts of the church visiting other parts of the church, and it would be just an exciting account of what's going on. And hey, if God's leading you to help with this, you are more than welcome to step in. We'd we'd be thrilled to have partners join us, but this is what we're doing. And it's not that we absolutely have to have your help. We're doing the best we can, and if you want to partner, that that's that'd be wonderful but it changes some of the dynamic of that that communication there is so much here i'm reminded of a of a brother and uh this is an american and he just described how early in his ministry he was called to southeast asia to help teach he did not have much in the way of income but what little he did he he would get his check his paycheck and it didn't make sense, but they decided as a family, they just would get that check and they would pray over it. And they would, their, their first contribution, their first payment out of it was their tithe. And that was their, it was an act of worship. It was an act of obedience. And that was from when it was, he was really struggling. He was struggling to provide for his family, but he's just kind of maintained that ever since. And God has honored that and opened up more ministry opportunities for this this person as well. But I am I'm encouraged by those small steps and and praise God also that Uzbekistan has a heart that it's in a position now where it's taking measures to be a sending country. Praise God for that. I'm just charged up hearing that and just thinking of them launching and you know what they're they're having some struggles 
and it's related probably to some of this financial shortcoming, this faithfulness aspect, but praise God still, again, some simple corrective measures can go a long ways in, in shoring this up. Is there anything you wanted to touch on on what I just shared, or do you mind if I ask a couple other questions? Well, so you gave a great example, and I think that's, you know, sometimes it feels like the Lord asks more when we are in need and uh, not in plenty. So um, I mentioned that one of our disciples is now a full-time missionary in in, uh, Kazakhstan. And when I was arrested, my this young disciple who came to Christ yeah in 20 years ago uh, he was one of my university students he came to Christ quickly had a calling to be a pastor he and I were arrested in 2005 when we were deported and he took over our house church as one of the pastors mm-hmm. and slowly over the years the Lord grew him to be like an overseer over the network of house churches in southern Uzbekistan so he and now he's about 40 years old, but he was selected to be then a missionary to a neighboring country. But the Lord allowed him, he had a small apartment that he was able to sell before he mm. he moved, moved to uh, Kazakhstan. And he made some profit from that sale. And after making that profit, he gave... 10%, so 5% to our house church, and he gave 5% to the network of Uzbek house churches in that country. And the whole network of house church pastors were shocked oh, because yeah. no one had done that before. And yet they could understand from Acts chapter 4 that this was done in the early church. Mm-hmm. And um, I did not even know about this until... You know, someone else told us, our own disciples didn't tell us, but someone else did. And it was such an encouragement that the Holy Spirit still gives that kind of desire in the hearts of his followers, followers of Jesus, mm-hmm. to give sacrificially like that for the benefit of yeah. the house church. And yeah. I, we need to see that more and more, especially in the persecuted, hostile places. I you know, they, they can do that and they are able to do that. And we need to celebrate that, encourage that. Um, of course, we need to give sacrificially. Yeah. And, you know, one thing we did with our agency, we were allowed to go to Thailand every January for a missions conference, which would cost us about $5,000 for our family of five. Mm-hmm. Um, but we decided to go every three years and the money that we did not spend for those two years, we reinvested into the, the lives of our disciples and t- into our house church. And so for us, we had to make sacrifices. And our disciples, they didn't know it at the time, but much later, many years later, they understood what we were doing. And they were appreciative of that, yeah. that we were willing to give up, give up one week of beautiful beach time in the hot summer waters of Thailand. And yet, for their sake, we wanted to make that sacrifice because they were part of our family of Christ. They were part of our family. And we saw that in the lives of missionaries who came to Korea. They gave their lives and their resources for our people. And I believe what we plant with remains in that land and bears fruit. And mm-hmm. I, I am so grateful that the missionaries, many from America who came, 
gave generously their lives and their resources. Mm -hmm. And so we're only replicating what they have shown to our ancestors. And 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17, again, that we carefully build things that will last into eternity, into our disciples, and especially in pioneering churches. So about the the call to tithe, and as you described, to even give sacrificially, to give above the tithe at times, in maybe more in the Western world, maybe this is cropping up in other parts too, but um, sometimes the focus of that, that call for funds from churches seems oriented more on their own buildings, their own brick-and-mortar projects, nicer campuses, bigger buildings, nicer programs. But I, I heard you mention previously about how this funding really is to fund ministry. Do you see any kind of things that give you concern or pause where it seems like it's more just funding for a nicer experience rather than the funding of ministry to advance the gospel? Yes, that's. thank you for bringing that up. And I, uh, I forget the statistics, but I'm, I teach perspectives and part of, and that's a missions course. And um, yeah, I, I think out of whatever is given to the church, it's only like if out of every dollar, only pennies uh, end up going overseas uh, to missions, um, including those, especially those who are unreached people groups. So it, it is a very low percentage and, you know, I, I really respect and admire church leadership, those who say we have made a commitment to give 25% or whatever it is, or 25% of all our uh, gifts that we receive is going to missions. And I believe, you know, God honors that and also will bless um, a, the church that has that kind of focus and vision. And in, maybe initially when the church is being built, the percentage may be lower, but event you can increase that so that you you're engaged in ministries to those who have never heard the gospel. That's what I would encourage. There are I know there are some churches that uh, even the Cornerstone Chapel we are part of, giving generously to any kind of ministries in those places where there is no gospel or if there's orphanage, especially being established in those countries that may have heard the gospel already, there are established churches and yet orphanages that bring in the lost children. I think those are great ministries. So we are responsible for what the Lord has blessed us with in terms of giving. But in, um, if we spend it on ourselves, our own program, in the end, we have to be accountable to that, to the Lord. And, you know, um, how much of that is really what the Lord would have wanted? That's mm-hmm. something that He will reveal, yeah, at the end of time. And and I think any sober, prayerful introspection on this can be revealing and humbling for for individual churches. I would say even for us individually, when we look at the way we steward our own resources and all of that. But just to start to bring this to a conclusion, I am really touched by your description of a self-supporting church, a church that advances ministry that's capable of deploying resources in advance of the gospel. And this is actually part and parcel. It's it's integral to our work at the Christian Emergency Alliance. We do see this as 
uh, a critical piece of supporting the church and its ability to uh, put food on the table for its families, its ability to tithe to local fellowship, its ability to uh, fund the expansion of the gospel, to train up missionaries, to train up pastors, to strengthen the church, and to help the church stand even when pressures come. And so much of this requires, in, in some capacity, I would say bivocational pastors, but it almost requires us as Christians to flip a switch in our minds and recognize that we're bivocational Christians. We're always Christians. We're called to, to be in ministry. We're called to serve. And whether it's us directly or through our families, we're supporting ourselves, but we're shepherding those resources for intentional kingdom purposes. And um, we do need businessmen to be able to step up and not just provide jobs, but also train others in their midst on how to successfully run a business. That might just be small businesses in Uzbekistan or Vietnam or Nigeria or Illinois, but just so that they too can have opportunities to provide great services or products to others, but also really to support the kingdom and support one another when pressures come. Is, is What's your take on all of that? That's an excellent point. In countries like America or even Korea, where there's freedom of religion and the church has been established for a while, there's not too much persecution. Maybe, you know, they'll call us names like you're crazy, you're weirdo, you're, right. you know, um, domestic terrorist for in America, if you're evangelical Christian. But in Muslim nations, when Christians come to Christ, there is heavy cost right up yes. front. And if you miss the prayer at the mosque, they'll ask why, why did you not come? And at that point, every believer, Christ follower, um, who used to be a Muslim, they have a decision to make. Do I tell them the honest answer or do I hide it? And once you start telling them the honest answer, then you have to defend your faith. Mm -hmm. And so you said bivocational Christian, that's all of them. They, they're working, but they have to tell them why I am no longer going to the mosque, why I am not joining you in the Quranic prayers. Have, and it opens the door for the gospel to be shared. It opens the door for persecution. But this is the Lord's will, and that's the early church. Mm -hmm. And so you hardly have Christians who are um, not sharing their faith in Uzbekistan. Either they chose not to do that and hide. Many of them are sharing, and they suffer for it. But then the gospel is going forth, and household, households are being evan evangelized, and they come mm -hmm. to salvation. I think in America individually you have that aspect of being bivocational christian collectively going back to the church what's been happening is when churches become too wealthy and they own a lot of property and assets they're liable for lawsuits mm -hmm. so let me explain it's not only churches but agencies big mission agencies are struggling with this temptation because Let's say, and this has happened, let's say in Yemen, there was an unrest many years ago. So all the missionaries who were working there were pulled out, American missionaries, because the U.S. embassy gave an official uh, charge. All U.S. citizens should, be, should leave the country. We're not liable for you. We cannot protect you. So um, including then Christians and missionaries who have been working there, they need to make that decision. Well, the mission agency, some of them have made a corporate decision to pull everyone out. Even if the 
one or two particular missionaries wanted to stay at the cost of their lives, counting their costs, they're saying, we want to stay. However, what has happened in the past is if the missionaries die on the field as a martyr, then some of the family members can sue the mission agency back home. Mm. And even though it doesn't go to court, they settle out of court. And some of the mission agencies have decided it's becoming a financial burden to handle all these kind of cases. And therefore, we're going to pull all our missionaries out, not necessarily because of the possibility of losing their lives, but also probably more stronger reason is we don't want to lose our asset, our, yeah. you know, all our uh, wealth. And some churches or mission agencies, they're into tens of million dollars or hundreds of million dollars of established campuses or, you know, investments that they have made. And, you know, it's made me think the church should be at a point where if we are sued for whatever we own, why not give give it up? You know, yeah. it, it, it almost brought me to that realization because we have we're now owning too much here on Earth. It's not easy anymore to step up to go to hard places. So the yeah. people in those hostile lands are not hearing the gospel because of financial reasons and not necessarily because we may lose our missionaries in those their lives in those places right so it's it's um it's a challenge for uh the church of america or church of korea in these in these times of hostility towards the gospel yeah and it also speaks to misaligned incentives or perverse incentives it's it's not wanting to take an action or taking actions that you wouldn't otherwise because you don't want to lose all these assets that you've accumulated. It, and it goes back to a similar principle that you described of these people in Uzbekistan who are thinking about being missionaries, but they're attracted not because they're, they're motivated to go and just share the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it may be that they're seeing a lifestyle that seems better than what they have right now. And they're like, well, I, I wouldn't mind having that. And, it's this uh, misaligned incentive that can really play tricks on our hearts. And you didn't say this, but I, I, I'm picking up on it. It's something that I've tried to champion before is um, as Christians, as churches, um, to some extent, we have to be willing to lose. We have to be willing to lose. And if it costs us, it costs us. If we pay a price, we, we're willing to, to pay that price even joyfully. I know I could already anticipate the counter-arguments from really faithful people, I'm sure, that would uh, have different uh, things to share on all of this, but they might argue that, well, that's really bad stewardship. You know, you're going to potentially compromise all of this. We do have these nice campuses. We do need uh, a seminary for this and, and all of that. Um, but to really go in a kind of a weird direction is it almost seems like there's too much captured equity. <laughs> like you said, you've almost become too wealthy. And it's all all that has been captured and locked up in assets. And in real estate, if all your equity is in an asset, well, that's where it's stuck and that's where it stays. And But if you liquidate that, if it becomes liquid. It can be deployable. It can be used. And, and I don't know. That principle is just coming to my mind. We have a whole lot uh, 
that's been captured in all of this. Not that those assets are, are all bad, and I'm certain I'm sure some of them are are very needed. Like you said, when a, a church is just starting, they might have to spend a little bit more to get up to to purchase a place for them all to meet if they're called not to be a house church. But in so many respects, it feels like the church has a tremendous amount of assets in in captured equity, and where we really should be thoughtful and and prayerful on how we deploy the resources that we've been given. Going back to that question, are we just going to make our own surroundings and programs tip-top shape and brag about the just how excellent our quality can, the, the levels of quality can reach? Or are we going to provide enough for our, our local fellowship, but also focus on deploying those resources into to actual ministry? to actual evangelism, to actual discipleship, even if you don't have the tip-top programming available. Amen to that. I think you've you've uh, articulated well you know, the, some of the things that was on my mind and what I try to convey. So thank you, Andy. That's Well, I, I don't know if I did it justice or if I just butchered it, but these these themes keep coming up again and again in my own thoughts and prayers and conversations. So I think it's very healthy for us to discuss. And I, I appreciate how it relates, you know, in Central Asia, how it's going to relate in Europe and Africa and Southeast Asia, the United States, Europe. It, this is really something that we're all going to have to be thoughtful of. And I hope that this conversation has at least illuminated some of the factors at play for people who probably knew something was off, but couldn't really articulate or, or process where the issues were. So um, any other thoughts, James, as we begin to wrap up? Going back to Matthew 6.33, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you as well. And that that includes church buildings, pro, you know, programs, ministries that we desire, but really seeking what is on God's heart for his kingdom, and then doing it in a with a heart of integrity and and, and righteousness. And in, in Central Asia, where it, Muslim nations with hostility and doing it in such a way. And so we, going back to Uzbekistan, we encouraged our local church friends. What makes sense right now is doing short-term trips within the country because Uzbekistan still is majority Muslim. There are still villages that need to hear the gospel and you can afford that. And then when you are ready, the Lord will bless you and you can go beyond your borders to Afghanistan or Pakistan. And at that point, you know, the Lord, if we're faithful, just like Korea, then you're able to send missionaries all over the world and and be uh, faithful with what you have right now for the scope of ministry you have. Otherwise, when you start relying 95% of your budget from overseas, then you have to listen for direction and guidance from overseas who may not have a clear idea what you're doing here on the on the ground anyway. Yeah, I you're right. I think that's very important for everybody to to factor in and I love how you described um, those acts of faith. Um, maybe the opportunity isn't there right now for some of the Uzbek Christians who who God's pricking their hearts to to look at the nations in the neighboring countries or around the world. Um, but you shared how they can take baby steps of faith with what you have available, take a baby step of faith. And in my experience, God honors that and he'll stretch you through that. 
and you'll learn and grow and spiritual maturity and just basic knowledge and and just see how the Lord moves in all of that through those baby steps of faith. Well, James, I really appreciate you coming on and just sharing your perspective and your insights. I'm always struck by them, and I'll be pondering this for days to come, and I hope that it uh, sparks some good conversations. Not that James and I are, you know, we've got everything figured out, but um, I do think that there's a lot to what was expressed in this conversation, and I pray that it's a blessing to uh, some communities, some Christian communities, and some surprising countries. So, James, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. It's always a joy and a privilege to be with you, and uh, may may the Lord bless your ministry and continue to expand uh, the hearts and minds of those who uh, listen to your podcast to really grasp God's heart for the world. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And before I let you go, James, if if anybody wanted to learn more about your ministry or or wanted to to follow what you were doing, is there a way that they can do that? Yes, they can. Um, and my wife and I are on staff with Crescent Project. It's a ministry that trains and equips Christians to reach out to the Muslims. And um, we also have our own 501c3. It's called I-43 Ministry. I will make sure that all of that makes its way into the show notes so that um, our listeners can go and, and touch base with you if they're if they're prompted to, to do that. And James, thank you so much for your kingdom service, all that you're doing, all that faith is doing. And we're just grateful uh, to be serving in the trenches alongside you. Amen. Thank you, Andy. God bless you, James. Have a good day. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.